I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my big bag of onions. The cough made to California, broken hearts and bars unknown. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio How the soul may be so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars are standing by the Our stories are our most precious possessions. They are our identity. Getting them wrong, misusing them, can cause real hurt and harm. So I've always tried to tell them with respect and empathy. I've spent my life telling other people's stories. I've worked in the media, international development and social work, telling stories to raise awareness and highlight injustice. And now I teach writing to others. But recently, I've begun to think even more deeply about the ethics of telling other people's stories. I'm writing a memoir about my life with a family member. I'll call him Liam. He has a diagnosis he doesn't accept of Asperger's, a form of autism. And I wanted the memoir to campaign for greater understanding of autism within the criminal justice system. Liam doesn't want to tell his side of the story himself, and so he's given me permission to do it for him. But the potential exposure for Liam gave me pause. How would he be judged? Would he be bullied? How would it define his future? And me, how would I be seen? And above all that, a bigger question came to loom ever larger. Can he, can any of us, truly consent to our story being told? Say 
The most terrifying thing that happened to Uli Steck was not the moment an avalanche caught him on Annapurna, the tenth highest mountain in the world, and almost knocked him off. Nor was it the time when, perhaps because on the same mountain a rock hit his helmet, he found himself in an instant 300 meters below, concussed and bruised all over. Each event caused him to wonder whether he liked risky climbing too much, but as one of the best alpinists of his generation, and often the fastest, he did not wander long. No, the most frightening episode occurred in April 2013, when he found himself under attack by a crowd of rock-throwing Sherpas at Base Camp 2 on Everest. That was the moment he thought he might die, a thought he had not had before. The Sherpas were angry because, as they fixed the safety ropes above the camp, he and two others had ignored the rule to keep the mountain clear of climbers and had come up past them. He had no wish to be disrespectful, but since he made no use of safety ropes, why shouldn't he go up? He had a problem with people on mountains. Off the slopes, he could be gregarious and funny. On them, he became so intensely focused that he could not bear distraction. If I were a man and you a dog If I were a man and you a dog i throw a stick for you If I were a man and you a dog i throw a stick for you
over dog and you are man. I throw a fit for you. If I were dog and you are man, I throw a fit for you. Oh 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 oh. Potato chip, potato chip, patata 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 patata. When I was seven years old, my parents took me to see a movie that made a lasting impression on me, and with me on an entire generation. From the red velvet seat I was sitting in, I witnessed a world of wonder and possibilities, and I got fascinated with science, the mysteries of the universe, the power of love and friendship. And the uniqueness of the human condition—at least, that's what I make of it now. Because I don't know about you, but when I was seven years old, I had a hard time making sense of any movie, let alone one about an alien stranded on Earth looking for a phone to call home. So I did what most kids do when they don't understand something: I turned to a grown-up. Luckily, my father was sitting right next to me. So as soon as the movie started, I began to ask questions. Why did they leave him? Why is he hiding? What's wrong with his finger? Whatever I asked, because was the answer that I got.
A day in November 2013, 9.15 a.m. My hands are sweating. I, I mean sweating. That has never happened to me before. I've never been so excited and terrified at the same time. I feel as if I'm in a dream. A thousand thoughts run through my head, but the ones that stand out the most are, is this real? Is this actually happening? What have I done? What am I about to do? For the first time in my life, I feel afraid. What if I make a mistake? What if I say something that'll ruin me for life? I'm freaking out inside. As I twitch nervously, I look down at my phone to check the time. 
But instead, I focus on another text from a former client that just flashed on my screen. The message reads, we can never work with you again. Wow, I, really? It's that bad. Okay, breathe. What have I done? Oh yeah, something huge. Something disruptive. Thank <laughs> you. 
of 1848 to 55 not only transformed the lives of those who found fortunes in the dirt and those who failed to, it also changed America. It rapidly populated the new territory of California, which America had just seized from Mexico, and hastened the day that the Golden State became a state. It led to the construction of railroads to bind the settled eastern states to the Wild West. Its legacy includes San Francisco and America's thriving Chinese population, which exploded during the gold rush as boatloads of Chinese prospectors arrived. Gold transformed the American dream. Whereas the Puritans dreamed of accumulating modest fortunes, a little at a time, year by year, through sobriety, thrift and steady toil, the 49ers dreamed of instant wealth won in a twinkling by audacity and good luck. I will sleep 
that one of the parents was a, uh, a fly screen designer and, and, and an engineer and we had another parent who owned a farm who had welding equipment and, and, and workshops and undercovers so we spent three days uh, building a, uh, a, a, a structure which would take 12 boats and two days adding all the boats in, in, into that. So that, that, that was just the, 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 the physical uh, logistics of it. The, the FNAC, um, then, then there was a case of, uh, of uh, team clothing, and then there was a case of uh, insurance, then there was a case of flights, accommodation. Um, we, were, we, were, we, were we, we, were we were very lucky that we, uh, we, uh, we managed to uh, get some uh, funding from uh, Nielsen's holidays. Um, uh, that, was a, that was a case of £30,000, um, which went a little bit towards the, 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 the cost of the, uh, of, of the whole exercise. But it still meant that uh, I had two children and two adults to take to Buenos Aires over the Christmas and New Year period. I squared and slow make love with my lips Read eyes like books, read books like science I remember and fix citation to case Case two four Discombobulation and I can cook up a storm I'm Michelangelo's David Tested and
listening to my big bag of onions. When an authority figure, such as an experimenter in a white lab coat, ordered a subject to pull a lever to shock another person, the subject repeatedly did so, even though the other person, an actor in no actual danger, reacted dramatically to the shock. If a Martian descended to Earth to watch these two experiments, he would be forced to conclude that rhesus monkeys empathize while humans do not. Rhesus monkeys appear to know what it's like to be another in pain, while humans either don't or simply don't care. Of course, we know that humans can care, can empathize with others, can consciously think about what it's like for someone else to have an emotional experience. It is tempting to conclude that rhesus monkeys empathize and care about the well-being of others, and the experiments seem to support this point. But there are alternative interpretations. Perhaps the lever-pulling monkeys found the recipient's response to shock disagreeable. In aversive situations, individuals stop what they are doing. Perhaps the monkeys were concerned about retribution, that they might later be in the hot seat and at the mercy of a less-than-benevolent individual. If so, then abstaining from pulling the levers was not mediated by empathy, but by self-interest.
would create a day a year of positive giving. When you give for free something from yourself or from your body without looking forward for a return. The giving is to be from yourself, your body, your mind or your soul, something you've created or produced. So it could be for example a seminar or a lecture or a performance, a cake or a smile, a hug, anything that you want to donate, you can donate a blood. anything you choose to give for free from yourself or from your body. The idea basically is to create a chain of giving that will communicate people on a basis of generosity, creativity and positive giving. By that, we will create a positive communication in our societies and also encourage creativity and production alongside generosity and collaboration. I believe the impact can be enormous on our happiness, our communities and our well-being as a whole. As we are all human beings, poor and rich, have our body and mind to create and produce and share from, that's what this day is about. You're listening to My Big Bag of Onions.
Is there some sacred state by which one might exist independently of significatory writing? There is not, and never will be. The vesicle needs the charred crust to survive. It needs the scars of the environment in order to navigate and make sense of the energies of its world. This is why everyone is subject to psychopathic inscription and why many of the criteria seem like commonplace contemporary characteristics for anyone other than a sociopath. It is why the catch-all web of categories in clinical psychology is so contradictory. No one could be autonomous from this psychopathic writing under the current regime of capitalism. Psychopathy is a statement of sanity, of correct formatting. The psychopath is not, like the schizophrenic or the psychotic, a failed script, a subject outside of the social or working code, but an example of capitalist code itself.
I suppose you could call me an inventor. And it's actually funny because when I was a kid, I actually identified with the term differentist, which was something that I made up, which is where I just wanted to be different. And even though it may not appear that I am a differentist nowadays, I dress like everyone else, I talk like everyone else, I was actually almost in a way trained from the get-go to be different. So how was I trained from, I guess you could say trained to be different as a kid, was that my parents never gave me that many toys at all. I didn't have a Tamagotchi, a Nintendo, a Wii, an Xbox, nothing. What they gave me, however, was a hot glue gun, and I had to make my own toys. And that's, that's where the first area of me almost being put in a position, or almost forced to be in a position where I had to be creative in solving one of the first problems you ever have as a kid, which is how to keep yourself entertained. Fresca e na prima do violão De Bahia, Saragaça De Morada, Salamansa Boelha, Cretia Que nota um teto cor E que tinta um tapinto Senhor São Vicente Num calça aventurou Boa brisa fresca e na prima do violão Tocou e que tinta, muita pintou 
Senhor São Vicente Num calça aventurado Foi a brisa fresca E na prima do violão No Bahia Saragaça Morada Salamansa Moelha Cretel E eu me dei Crioulo Boel Minha carnaval são Silvestre e de Santa Cruz, um da Gola, um da Cruz. Senhor São Vicente, botei um pilão para Cotimite, botei Montara para namorar, botei Porto Grande Maravilha. Senhor São Vicente, botei um pilão para Cotimite, botei Montara para namorar, botei Porto Grande Maravilha. Senhor São Vicente, botei um pilão pra Cotimite Botei Montcara pra namorar Botei Montcara na maravilha Senhor São Vicente Perhaps the best way to understand what's meant by zest would be to consider the different ways in which men behave when they sit down to a meal. There are those to whom a meal is merely a bore. No matter how excellent the food may be, they feel that it's uninteresting. They've had excellent food before, probably at almost every meal they've eaten. They've never known what it was to go without a meal until hunger became a raging passion. But they've come to regard meals as merely conventional occurrences, dictated by the fashions of the society in which they live. Like everything else, meals are tiresome. But it's no use to make a fuss, because nothing else will be less tiresome. Then there are the invalids who eat from a sense of duty, because the doctors told them that it's necessary to take a little nourishment in order to keep up their strength. Then there are the epicures, who start hopefully, but find that nothing has been quite so well cooked as it ought to have been. Then there are the gourmandizers, who fall upon their food with eager rapacity, eat too much, and grow plethoric and stertorous. Finally, there are those who begin with a sound appetite, are glad of their food, eat until they've had enough, and then stop.
Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another journey through the pleasures of music, words, and sound. Be seeing you. Bill's Big Bag of Onions has been produced and directed by Adrian Cohen and is a guppy production for Cone Radio.